0: Well, welcome back to Stand Up Citizen. This is podcast number two. Today, we're going to talk about the first principles that guided our founders so we can figure out, so we can understand the foundation of what we've inherited. And I mean and not only the earliest, but the important and enduring principles like the norms that have been developed over time. That way, we can access the founders' reasoning and take advantage of their insights. Or we could discard them if they're too time-worn. If you've read the book How Democracies Die, you may have a good sense for what norms and guardrails have been developed over time to promote good government. The main purpose, the essential reason for this podcast series, is so that we can assess and understand how our country is currently aligned with or divergent from foundational first principles. If we can do that well, we may be able to diagnose or at least critically compare our uh, current malaise to the design and ideas that informed those who set us on our course. It will give us some context and fullness to expressions of America's greatness. An insight into what it means when we say something is unconstitutional. Well, we owe it to Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, uh, John Adams, Washington, to our parents who defended our nation's principles against tyrants, and to to future generations. But here's a distinction I want you to understand. This is definitely not an exercise in originalism or textualism. Rather, we want to understand how the wise framers of our country arrived at our founding principles and documents, what informed their judgments, and what influences guided them in their debates, in their deliberations, and in their drafting. They were, after all, practical men, very practical, who wrote and spoke often about their reasoning. Many of you may have encountered the Federalist Papers somewhere in your education. Unlike our political environment today, our founders debated passionately, earnestly, every key decision and design choice before they proceeded. Our founders also knew that the future would look different, so they would have to construct a government design that would adapt to the unknowable future. They could not, of course, in the 18th century, have anticipated a need for a federal aviation administration, but they were able to create a document that would be flexible and adapt, but only with the support of good faith in the political officials and in citizens. And they did take into account that certain behaviors were, quote, "sown into the nature of men, unquote always had been, always would be. Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Six stated, men can be, quote, ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious, unquote, so that their efforts had to take a realistic consideration of human nature into account. Otherwise, the project might not be successful. And the success for a republic would require civic virtue and an informed citizen. Uh, More about that later. Recall the contrast described in the first podcast between the peaceful aftermath of the American Revolution and the violence of the philosophically heavy French Revolution, only two years after our constitution was written. The drive to achieve perfection in France led to excess and eventually despotism, more on virtue in a later episode. So the founding generation showed us that we don't have to agree on issues, but we should agree about principles, rules, norms, and national goals. That would lead to discussion, debate, and eventual agreement, even if that meant compromise. They were not afraid to stand up and debate their views vigorously, even in the face of a strong opponent. Bear in mind that the great Patrick Henry spoke eloquently in opposition to the new Constitution. This ability to debate in good faith vigorously is a lesson we seem to have misplaced in our fractious time. So, how did our founding fathers arrive at the place where a nation was born based on ideas? Debate and principles supported by wisely written, wisely constructed documents? Well, for the time being, let's call Adams, Washington, Hamilton, and the others colonists. That is, before 1776. They nevertheless considered themselves to be loyal Englishmen, no less than residents of Bristol, London, or York in the British Isles. Just because they were separated by 3,000 miles of ocean did not change their view that they had equal standing with men who lived in Great Britain. And while they didn't have representation in the British Parliament, they had their own colonial legislatures. You may have visited the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg or the old State House in Boston and realized there were serious functioning governments in Virginia and Massachusetts. They'd proven their loyalty to the king and parliament by their bravery and support during the Seven Years' War, waged by the great European powers in many places around the globe. It may truly be called the First World War. The name of the North American theater of that war comes down to us as the French and Indian War. Colonial militia fought side by side with British redcoats against French forces wearing blue, and their fearsome Native American allies. I think it's interesting to remember that de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who visited the United States in 1835, gives us a vivid vision on Indian warriors who were really feared. Quote, They practice a habitual reserve and a kind of aristocratic politeness, mild and hospitable when at peace, though merciless in war, beyond any known degree of human ferocity. The Daniel Day-Lewis films of Last of the Mohegans, depicts well the brutality of fighting in that war. You may remember Magua cutting out the heart of Colonel Monroe and taking a big bite out of it. Once that war was over, a victorious Britain had won all of French territories in North America. The British, however, had acquired a serious debt burden. Does that sound familiar? The cost of seven years of fighting on several continents had exhausted the treasury, which our British friends call the exchequer. Parliament re- reasoned that the colonies, which the Crown had so successfully defended, should pay part of the burden at least. Thus began the series of famous taxes that led to a re- revolutionary state of mind among the colonists and eventually to the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. John Adams said the revolution began before the actual fighting, in the hearts and minds of Americans. Uh, it's worth recalling that the Constitution was the culmination of 25 years of debate and struggle. The patriotic English colonists had helped Britain win the French and Indian War, but then very soon there was conflict with Parliament over the taxes to pay for that war. The 1765 Stamp Act came first, then the Declaratory Act, the increasing tension that sparked the 1770 Boston Massacre, 1773 Boston Tea Party, the creation of the colonists' committees of correspondence, a very subversive act, the creation of the Continental Congress, the long internal debate among the colonists over independence, the outbreak of fighting at Lexington and Concord in 1775. One date you should always remember was April 19th, 1775. Then the Declaration of Independence, which was a treasonous act against the crown. Eight years of fighting against the powerful British military forces. Remember Valley Forge, the crucial battle of Saratoga and the French Alliance, the 1781 victory at Yorkstown, finally peace with Britain in 1783. So who of us would dedicate most of their adult lives to such a struggle and at such great personal risk? So understanding the world of 1776 is uh, useful, I think. It may help illustrate how remarkable what the achievement of the revolution was and the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. At the time, Europe was dominated by empires ruled by kings, emperors and sultans. The great powers were Britain, France, Austria, Russia, Prussia, and Turkey. There was no Germany yet. Most of these countries were ruled by absolute monarchs, beholden to no elected assembly, who could curb their power or their authority, or even challenge what they wanted to do. Uh, The Pope in Rome was not only a spiritual authority, He controlled territory and fielded armies, and he often meddled in the political affairs of nations. Democracy was, to some extent, a historical curiosity. The Athenians, the Greeks, had installed democratic government during their golden age, to which we owe so much. Think Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But that democracy failed, ultimately. So, too, the Roman Republic yielded to the Roman Empire. The Italian city-states had remarkably short, remarkable but short-lived republics, but each had fallen either into despotism or had been overrun by the armies of France or the Holy Roman Empire. At that time, the African interior was almost totally unexplored. China and Japan were closed societies, and mostly unknown to Europeans. India was ruled by a descendant of the fearsome Mongol, Genghis Khan. Australia had just been discovered and would eventually be colonized by convict immigrants, many from Ireland. North and South America were vast wildernesses with only the coasts explored. People believed in demons and travel at night was scary. And dangerous. Only candles and torches provided light. Medicine was crude by our standards. Intentional bleeding was a common treatment for all kinds of ailments. George Washington may have perished due to excessive bleeding by his physicians, but it was also an era of great men and women. Mozart was reaching the height of his powers. Catherine the Great ruled Russia. Frederick the Great ruled Prussia. Edmund Burke, the Scottish philosophers, Adam Smith and David Hume, and Immanuel Kant, the very influential German philosopher, were in their prime. To our good fortune, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Adams, Franklin, and Hamilton can also be counted among the greats. And so armed conflict broke out in 1775 between the colonists, now called rebels, of course. And the British and their German mercenaries, King was, after all, from a German family, as Queen Elizabeth is today, but I'm sure you knew that. By mid-1776, the British had routed Washington's soldiers in every encounter. But the Patriots produced the Declaration of Independence anyway, the first time a nation had come into being this way. The first paragraph lets the whole world know why the colonists were taking this dramatic And very risky step. It was the age of reason. You had to give your reasons. Their list of grievances that constitute the last two-thirds of the Declaration present the colonists' case to the world in order to earn, quote, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. Unquote. The Declaration announced the familiar first principles on which independence was based. Still, America's fundamental principles. Quote, we hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we usually stop there, but there's more equally important that we tend not to emphasize nearly enough. Quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, So we have rights, but we also have responsibilities, something that Aristotle would recognize clearly. After all, we're self-governing, and therefore we must, as they say, step up to the task. And that paragraph concludes. Now bear with me that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of those ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish that government and institute a new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. In other words, It was the right of the citizens to change a government that wasn't doing its job. The final clause identifies and describes the most important civic and intellectual task of the citizen of our republic. Citizens must make political judgments on whether their government meets their responsibility to secure rights and to govern effectively. If a government fails, it's the job of the citizen to figure this out and determine how to change it and preserve both principles and political order. Justice Louis Brandeis would observe in the 1920s, Every voter is a part ruler of the state. Unless the rulers have education and character and are free men, our great experiment in democracy must fail unquote. Of course, we would include women today. Justice Brandeis was pointing out the need for informed consent and public virtue. So, back to the Declaration. This this momentous step constituted treason against the king. If the rebels were caught, they could be hanged. So, if they couldn't win through military success or diplomacy, or by merely outlasting the British This noble document might just have been forgotten. They signed and they pledged, quote, their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, unquote. There were 56 of them who signed eventually. John Hancock signed first in his large signature so that the king, who had a bounty on his head, could find him easily. So what kind of men were these signers? They were young in the main. The average age was probably 42 or 43. It impresses people sometimes when they find out what these young people were assembling and putting together. 24 were lawyers and judges, 11 were merchants, 9 were farmers and large plantation owners. They were men of means and well-educated for the most part. But they signed the declaration knowing full well that the penalty could be death if they were captured and they might lose all of their property and all of their possessions. The declaration and its underlying principles were part of the Enlightenment lexicon and derived chiefly from the English Bill of Rights, the French philosophes, you may have heard of Voltaire, and the Scottish common sense philosophers. John Witherspoon was a Scottish common sense philosopher who became president of Princeton University and who was one of James Madison's teachers. The common law heritage of Great Britain was transplanted in America and informed the founding of our nation, a tradition which began over 500 years before with Magna Carta culminated in our American scripture. So we live in a republic where government depends on the actions of its citizens for its authority. Remember that. It's an essential, important concept. The Declaration announces the bargain made between the naturally free citizen and the government established for a just, secure society. Citizens give up some of their natural rights to empower the government, to provide structure, protection, and functioning for the benefit of citizens. So it's a voluntary act. Samuel Adams wrote that, quote, when men enter into society, it is by voluntary consent, unquote. The reason rights are unalienable, as declared by the Declaration, is that they were given to us by God and therefore cannot be taken away by any man or man-made thing. Madison wrote that, quote, our rights and freedoms are a gift of nature, and for that reason are unalienable. Unquote. The function of a government is to ensure that citizens can enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness to the founders meaning eudaimonia, a Greek word meaning fulfillness, a fullness of, of life. If the government fails to do so and violates basic rights and principles, citizens can remove it and install a new government. It takes an informed citizen to perform this heavy political lifting. This also means that every person has equal standing. And as Washington Post conservative columnist Michael Gerson has written, every person is quote, valuable, not because of what they think because of who they are. Even when they are mistaken, their dignity requires respect for their freedom and conscience. The respect we owe to persons we do not owe to their opinions. Political respect is axiomatic, but intellectual respect must be earned. Keep this in mind the next time you hear one of our politicos engaging in name-calling. We propose a strategy that says people who disagree with us are bad, the enemy. Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater stated in his nomination acceptance speech in 1964, quote, we must not see malice in differences of opinion, unquote. Again, we don't have to agree on issues, but we have to engage, agree on principles and engage. And one of those American principles is the natural equality of citizens. The founders knew that the Greeks expected the good life would be guided by a desire for a pursuit of excellence. And that engagement in self-government was an essential aspect of a citizen's life. Aristotle wrote, quote, participation in politics is essential to goodness and the good life, unquote. He also believed we fully realize our true nature as political and social beings, as autonomous individuals, working to preserve and protect the community. Our founders were greatly influenced by the Greek philosophers, and Aristotle among them stands out. So this natural law of view is that we, were, we are fitted out by our creator to be self-governing rational, and able to make it reasoned choices. In order to give our consent and exercise our role as autonomous citizens, we need to be informed and educated and virtuous. Virtuous in the sense of putting our personal needs aside if it means for the greater good. Religion did have a proud, profound influence on the founding generation, not just this natural law concept. But once the principles were set out in the Declaration, and confirmed that citizens were possessed of both reason and God-given natural rights. Our founders took care to preserve every citizen's right to worship without government interference. The founders relied significantly on Christian principles in the Bible for guidance in creating our country. There's no doubt or dispute about that fact. But they were concerned that religious beliefs could intrude on the governing of a free people. The Declaration refers to nature's God, the Creator, and Providence, but there is no mention in the Constitution. Framers regarded the matters of conscience and belief to be beyond the reach of government. Madison himself wrote that no natural right is more unalienable than freedom of thought. Quote, because a man's opinion, depending only upon the evidence contemplated by his own mind, cannot be made to follow the dictates of other men, unquote. So freedom of religion, no religious tests to hold public office, no established national religion. Men together under a constitution, however, could make principles and even morals that all agree to into laws to guide a continental nation. Uh, Also, as practical men and students of the past, our founders studied history. I knew that religion had been a cause of bloody conflicts, even sometimes the excuse for political ends reached by violence. Consider the brutal English Civil War, which occurred within the lifetime of grandparents of of the founders, the Puritans' religious orthodoxy. remember, Remember that people were burned at the stake for not following some of the Puritans' directives, the bloody wars of religion in which millions of people died over whether you were Catholic or Protestant, and the Crusades of the 1200s and 1300s. In each case, religion was a bludgeon or a cause uh, to be bludgeoned. So the founders' conclusion, religion and government formed a combustible, explosive mixture. The power of government must be kept separate from religion because of the danger to religion. Jefferson himself articulated the idea of separation of church and state in his 1801 letter to the Danbury Baptists. Quote, Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and God, make no law restricting an establishment of religion, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. The subtle balancing of the strong influence of Christian teaching and the Bible against the need for a secular government has caused political stress for us, and still does. But they didn't want the British situation, where you had to be a member of the Church of England to get most important positions in most professions. So once the revolution was won, the founders proceeded to address the challenge of creating a new government for their nation. Beyond a review of the Constitution in the next podcast, we'll go through the passionate debate between those framers of the Constitution and those opposed, of which there were many influential writers and speakers. That debate will illuminate many of the great issues that are still with us and insights into the Founders' reasoning. We'll also learn that to carry this off, that is to have good government, citizens and political officers need virtue, courage, and education. We must make judgments for the common good and resist the urge to give self-interest priority. Every constitutional officer takes an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So let's ask the question, in any debate, can we get to a place where we can first ask, what is the principle involved here? If so, maybe we, we have a better chance to, as Franklin said, hang together as American citizens.